Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We're so glad to have you here at Commons. We don't take it lightly that you would head out in this frigid weather to be together in this room. It's a profoundly heartwarming thing to live our spiritual lives in a shared space. If we have not met, I'm Bobby, and I serve the Commons community as one of the pastors on the team, and I'm delighted delighted, I tell you, to be here in Inglewood with you today. Happy belated Valentine's Day to you. Any big Valentine's Day fans in the room still like living the Valentine's life days later? I have to say, oh boo. (laughs) I have to say, I embrace Valentine's Day. Uh, While a big part of my adult life was lived as the single life, years ago I decided to really lean into any celebration of love, no matter how hallmarky it might be. And one of the sweetest Valentine's Days I ever had was when I lived in Vancouver. And while I lived there, I performed weddings with a company called Young, Hip, and Married. And Young, Hip, and Married is a real company, and it matches couples with wedding officiants. So on Valentine's Day 2015, Young, Hip, and Married hosted pop-up weddings in Robson Square in downtown Vancouver. And we married over 40 couples that day who just rocked up with their marriage licenses. It was an amazing celebration of love. But after the lineup dwindled and the crowd thinned, a different kind of romance surfaced. A young woman and her mom came up to talk to me about the event. And I can't remember which one of them asked, but the question that surfaced was something like this. Do you ever do weddings for people who aren't couples? They meant weddings for people who want to say how grateful they are to be in each other's lives and who want to state their commitments to continue to keep loving each other well. And no, I had never done a wedding quite like that before, but that did not stop me. So that afternoon, at the end of a long and exhilarating day, we took our places to share in the ceremony of a mother and a daughter. And speaking words together of love and commitment to one another for as long as they both shall live. This was one of the best Valentine's days I ever had. It had nothing to do with the romance in my life and everything to do with love writ large. Do we have a photo of this one? Really? Where did it go? There was a photo, you guys, and the couple, the mom and the daughter, they're just standing there in front of me, and it was so lovely. So I wanted to say to you, happy belated Valentine's Day, everyone. May you continue to celebrate love in all of her surprising forms long past February the 14th. And as you are likely tracking with us through your journals and the podcast and being present, oh guys, I wanted you to see this photo, to take it in. So that's the mom and the daughter and me in Robson Square. Thank you at the back. Good job, everyone. So lovely. 
So as you are likely tracking with us through your journals and the podcast, or by being present every week here in worship, we are in our fourth year in our Romans series. And last week, Scott walked you through Romans chapter 9, and I'm here to cover Romans chapter 10. And it's super helpful to remember that for chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes a switch with his audience. We know from last week that Paul has turned his attention to the Jewish people in Rome, and those are his people. Paul had ended chapter 8 on a total high. He said, nothing can separate the community in Rome from the love of Christ. Not death, not life, not angels, not demons, nothing high and nothing low could separate them from the love of God. But Paul sinks to an emotional low in chapter 9. And he says he has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. So we got to ask, why so glum, Paul? Well, Paul says his people, Israel, have everything they need to experience this great love of God. But instead of seeing Jesus as the culmination of God's work in the world, they insist on going their own way, choosing narrowness instead of spaciousness, a stumbling stone instead of a cornerstone, exclusion rather than embrace. Now, as a community, we want to be very careful with how we speak about the identity of Israel and the place of the Jewish people in Paul's story. Paul doesn't use Israel to signify a nation with borders or a military or a capital city. Israel is a people, his people, and they were chosen by God to bless the whole world. But like any human project, there were gains and losses, there were synchronized steps and sorry missteps. Sadly, portions of Romans have been used by Christians to support something called supersessionism. From Martin Luther of the Reformation to some of my professors in Bible college, people have interpreted Paul to say that Christians replace Jews as God's chosen people, and this is anti-Semitic and wrong. Paul is doing the opposite of exclusion with these verses. So today, we're exploring Paul's imagination for expanding scripture and expanding tradition and expanding community. So I'm calling this sermon, When Paul Acts Like a Parent in the Ever-Expanding Family of God. And I know that's a little bit long, but I don't care. I like it. So let's pray together and then dive in. Loving God. You are a generous parent. In Jesus, we see that the divine gives freely, finds those who are far away, and welcomes them home to your loving embrace. For times when we have felt excluded in faith communities, in family, in friendships or work, will you continue to heal us, Holy Spirit, so that we can be influencers for inclusion across differences, with sensitivity towards those who are often abandoned or ignored, and aware of the image of God present in us all. So for the places where we have participated in human division, or inequality, or power imbalance, will you forgive us and invite us into the new humanity where we follow Jesus into the life of the world to come. Amen. 
So, when I was 22 years old, I was fresh out of Bible school, and I took a job at a Presbyterian church in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, I had grown up in Saskatchewan on a farm, and even by the time I was 22 years old, I had never lived in a city. For the most part, I was pretty excited about the move, but the day before I drove away from my parents' place, I had a minor meltdown trying to pack my car. But finally, with a little bit of help from my mom, we got all of the books and the boxes into the trunk, and the next day, I set off for America. I spent three years living in the States, and over the years there, I look back, or over the years since, I look back on that moment with my mom, and I, and we're repacking my car, and I wonder, what was my poor mom thinking? How did she let her firstborn child get in a car all by herself and drive off to a place neither of us had ever even been before? My mom had to have known that I was scared, and I was questioning my decisions and taking it out on the boxes in my trunk. But my mom, she didn't stop me. She had to have known that the experience I was driving toward would change me. I was leaving one world to become a part of another. I'd occupy dual identities, Canadian and maybe even a little American, prairie and west coast, country and city. I left home, and I would not come back the exact same person. And in some ways, Paul has left home, too. Paul is zealous Jewish leader turned passionate follower of Christ. He has this encounter with the divine when the resurrected Jesus appears to him on the road and changes everything for him. But Paul doesn't leave all of the old behind. Being Jewish is always a part of life for Paul. And chapter 10 opens with Paul saying that his heart's desire in prayer to God is that Israel would be saved. So Paul is saying, I'm for you, Israel, in every way. But as one of you, I know that we can get a little carried away with our zeal. And Paul knows a thing or two about carried away zeal. Paul had zeal up the wazoo for his Judaism before his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And zeal here is more than just hyped up enthusiasm. Zeal here actually has a violent edge. The word zeal links to the word zealots. And zealots were people who, before and after Paul's writing, are preparing to take up arms against Romans occupying Palestine. And 15 years after Paul's letter to Rome, the Jewish rebellion of 66 CE will introduce a violent stretch of Jewish-Roman wars, resulting in thousands dead and the temple in Jerusalem destroyed. And the problem with misplaced zeal is that sometimes it actually seems to work. You take down your enemy, you make others submit to you with force, you gain control over what feels like it actually overpowers you. But then the tables turn. In our violence to get what we want, we choose what Paul says is zeal without knowledge. It's a shoddy, homespun version of righteousness instead of participating in the righteousness of God. And the Greek word for knowledge is epignosis. And our modern minds think of knowledge as this stuff that's in our brains. But the Greek word here is actually broader. It's about recognition and intuition and discernment. 
Maybe you know a thing or two about misplaced zeal, a violent edge to your own personality, the panic that you feel when you can't control the people that you care about, an impatience with difference, conflict, change. Paul's conversation here with his Jewish family is hugely helpful because Paul is speaking about himself. He's aware of the violence in his own story and he's found another goal. His arguments transform into invitation. His love for the law becomes the law of love. And Paul says, you know what? Everything you need to step away from your violence has already been given to you. It's been with you all along. Romans 10 verse four reads, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And New Testament scholar Douglas Campbell, an expert on Paul, translates the Greek word nomos, which means law, as sacred teaching or sacred instruction, just to better reflect the underlying Hebrew Torah. Paul says the sacred teaching, the sacred instruction has found its telos, or culmination in Christ. Now, over the centuries, people have interpreted this word to mean different things. Augustine reads telos as the end, and Origen reads it as the completion. But over time, more and more people sided with Chrysostom and read telos as the goal. And in fact, this interpretation links back to the end of chapter nine in the language of pursuit. You pursue a goal. And Paul says, Israel, you work so hard. You work and you work and you work. But here's the deal. Christ puts everything right. You don't have to work like that anymore. Everything you work so hard, you already have. But Paul knows that this is actually not an easy sell. So he breaks into song. Just kidding. He doesn't break into song. I don't think Romans is a musical, but maybe it would help. I don't, probably not. It's probably good it's not a musical. Anyway, Paul breaks into an argument because that's what he does. He uses rhetoric. Paul makes a case for Christ as this ultimate goal. And I like to picture Paul kind of picking up Bible breadcrumbs here to make his point. So he bends down and he draws up a little bit of Leviticus and he picks up a little Deuteronomy and a little bit of Isaiah and a little bit of the Psalms. He covers it all, the writings, the prophets, the Torah, all to say that the work of Christ takes care of the work Israel tried so hard to do on their own. And in verses five to seven, Paul picks up a full quote from Leviticus and then this mashup of sayings from Deuteronomy. There's some beautiful stuff here. Paul sets up a contrast and then inserts midrashic notes, meaning Paul puts his own riff on this stuff. So it reads in verses six to seven, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And Paul is reading the resurrection back into these Old Testament texts. He sets up these opposites to have this dialogue of ideas. He says, faith versus the law discuss. 
And there's something about the scriptures in Paul's hands being incredibly bendable that invites us to pause and reflect on our own relationship with the text, on our own relationship with the Bible. The first Bible I remember in my life was this big decorative Catholic Bible that sat on the top of a bookshelf in my childhood home. Very, very dusty. I think I tried to crack it open once when I was 13. And in my teenage years, I had a youth study Bible. Maybe some of you also had those trendy little things. And that Bible had these student vignettes scattered throughout. And I liked reading stories about people like me way more than the verses on the page. And over the years, I have read as many translations as I could get my hands on. And I've even learned Greek and Hebrew to read the original languages. Who does that? Some of us around here do that. Uh, and I am sure that you can picture your own history of Bibles too. Really, are you picturing it? Beyond the format of the Bible as a book, it's the meaning of the text that continues to take different shape in my life. I used to look for just like one clear meaning. Now I look for multiple. I used to memorize the words on the page, and now I dig and I dig and I dig to find a fuller story to inform what's written there. There are times when everything I read seems to apply to my life in the Bible, and there are seasons where I cannot crack into how what is written there has anything to do with me. And I know I am not alone here. This book at the center of our faith tradition is contradictory, it is complicated, and at times it has been used to make Christians complicit in all kinds of wrongdoing. This is what I love about what Paul does in Romans. He reads back into the text his experience of the divine. Everything changed when Christ met Paul on the road and called him into a new humanity, away from his violence, into love. And you gotta love how tensions, they don't seem to terrify Paul. For him, the meaning of the text is always expanding. And maybe you need this invitation today. You don't have to read the Bible apart from your actual life. You can read your experience back into the words on the page. If the Bible has stopped being good news for you, then bend it. Find another way to see. Listen to new voices that you know you can trust. Find a new angle. Because it turns out, Paul says that this message will meet you wherever you are. The truth of the sacred story is not so far away from you after all. So the second section of Paul's argument is in verses 8 to 10, and it reads, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the bottom line for Paul is that it doesn't take the law to save you. It takes your lips. Now what now? <laughs> well, where the Deuteronomy passage, Paul quotes, says that the word is near to you so that you obey, Paul says that the word here is in you. 
so that you can proclaim. But what does it mean to proclaim the message of Christ raised from the dead? Paul is saying that everything the law gave to Israel, a covenantal relationship, the steadfast love of God, the possibility of shalom, all of this is now possible, proclaimed even in Jesus. It's the difference between hollow action and wholehearted affirmation. And I'm not saying that action is bad. It's incredibly important in the scope of living out your faith. But anyone can follow some rules. The law Paul is talking about is trickier than that. Israel tried and tried and tried, but it still could not perfect the law. And honestly, no one in here could do that. And maybe Israel was never meant to all along because the law is an ongoing story. It's a narrative that leads to longing for more. Paul writes to say what you search for is actually in your hearts. It's on your lips and you live into what is already there with these three simple words. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord is an ancient confessional formula. It's like a creed packed into three words. Jesus is Lord is wholehearted affirmation. And theologian Sarah Heiner Lancaster explains that in Rome, the confessional would have these overtones of counter-confession to emperor worship, even if they weren't directly aimed at an emperor. People have tripped over Paul's words for centuries, thinking that he means conversion here at any cost, but Paul's not crying out against other religions. He's just speaking to his own. Because even in his own life, Paul has more than one faith tradition. The best at being Jewish, the quickest at being Christian, that's Paul. And I relate to our guy here. I have multiple parts of my faith tradition too. I was raised Catholic, I'm really grateful for that. I served at a Presbyterian church, I was ordained Baptist, and now I'm here with you all. I used to think that the Christian way was so small, now I think and imagine it's so spacious. My faith includes the sacraments, the sinner's prayer, and the spirit in all things. I have multiple Christianities. And I hope that they just keep coming, welling up in my heart, begging for me to pay attention, changing with me as I change. And the same is true for you. You don't have to leave the old behind to find something brand new. In fact, I'd argue that where you've been in your faith is essential to where you're going. For three years in the San Francisco Bay Area, I made a life for myself. I learned to drive on freeways, it's kind of a big deal. I spent long, foggy days exploring art and culture in San Francisco. I got to know America. In fact, I moved there just before 9-11 and I saw that country change right in front of my eyes. With all the ups and the downs, the Bay Area did a lot of good for me. I opened my heart there, Aww. to a faithful community that wowed me with their open heart towards me. I made friends for life, look at young Bobby there, <laughs> who still send me cards in the mail and show up for big events like my ordination and my wedding. I listened to people's secrets. I traveled to places I'd never dreamt of going 
I expanded. Yes, I even made a wacky decision to dye my hair for my 25th birthday with these big chunks of alt red. I don't know, I think it looks kind of cool. Maybe I'll bring it back for year 45. Just kidding, I am not bringing that back. But California changed me. Not because it's beautiful, and it is, or because the food is so great, it is, but because people there, different from me, showed me who I was becoming. Leaving home, geographically or even spiritually, can teach you more about who you are and how God will meet you in your wandering. Earlier, Paul said that the word is in you, and that's true. But later in the chapter, Paul will say that you need each other to hear the word, and that's true too. For Paul, so much was expanding. The scriptures were expanding. The great tradition of his faith was expanding. And the thing about all of this expansion is that Paul does not leave anyone behind. Paul says to the church, Jew and Gentile sitting side by side and still pretty uncomfortable with all of their differences. He says this, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This verse, it has an additive effect. With one reference for Lord, Paul holds onto his Jewish family. With another reference for Lord, he adds the family who follow the risen Christ. Paul is not saying one is in and one is out. He's saying that you can all be in, every last one of you. And by all, Paul isn't just referring to Jews and Gentiles either. The passage he borrows from in Joel refers to all human beings. And in his book, Far From the Tree, all about how our differences can actually unite us, Andrew Solomon says this, I do not accept competitive models of love, only additive ones. In this moment, Paul would say the same. Paul would say, it doesn't matter where you were in your past. It doesn't matter how you identify in your present. It doesn't matter who you think is in and who you think is out. The life and death of Jesus expands to graciously touch us all. Everything we hope for and live for all flows from the divine in Christ. Belonging, new beginnings, more understanding. And this passage about Jews and Gentiles would have had a leveling effect on the community that Paul writes to in Rome. He says that their culture, their economic differences, their religious expression, all of it can be unified in Christ. So the affirmation is this, are you for life over death? Yes. Are you for God near to you rather than far away? Yes. Are you for being together rather than being all alone? Yes. Okay, now face each other and live it out. Maybe for you, you're only holding on to faith by a thin thread. Maybe for you, there just doesn't seem to be enough space for you to think and to grow and to keep being a Christian. Maybe for you, so many parts of your tradition have left real damage on your life. 
today. May you trust that the community of God is so wide and there is so much space for you, I promise. You don't have to hide. We come home to God when we make a home for each other. So let's see how this chapter ends. The tone that prevails in chapters 9 to 11 is actually a tone of lament. Paul is gutted that his best preaching brings Gentiles into the church, but his own kin refuse to believe. So there's a flurry of Old Testament references at the close of chapter 11, but I want to focus on the last one. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now remember, Paul is really speaking to his fellow Israelites here, and they would know the rest of this passage, which reads, to a disobedient and obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. And from there, this passage in Isaiah goes on to speak of the judgment of God. But when Paul points to Isaiah, he's saying, I have made my case. Now the choice is actually yours. Do you want to step into the arms of God or do you want to back away? Do you want to walk away? The judgment of God is you being left to your own devices. You may choose to walk away, but God will actually never leave you. So when I was 25, I left California and headed back home to Canada. And those years in the States were big growing up years for me, but did I need to move so far away from home just to grow up a little bit? Maybe not. I could have saved my mom a lot of worry and grief if I would have stayed a little closer to home. But I think there's something incredible and remarkable about all of the ways that God meets us no matter how far we go. You can be rebellious and you can be stubborn and God will still meet you. You can be so far from home and God will still meet you. You can choose to walk away and God will still meet you. Paul is kind of like my mom, helping God's firstborn. God's firstborn people pack up their stuff for this journey, just hoping and praying that they'll find their way home eventually. And when they get home, there will be this big, boisterous party with so many participants, so many people assured that they too are the beloved of God, what an ever-expanding family. All of us under a banner of love. And God stands across from you holding your hands, always affirming the divine commitment to your story. And Paul says, if Israel or if someone you love can't get there yet, it's okay because God is always forever for them, always and forever for us all. Let's pray. Loving God, in you we find that all of our leaving, all of our wondering, all of our uncertainty about who you are and how to live for you how to live for each other. All of it can be a part of a path that brings us home. 
We hear the scriptures say again and again that you don't give up on your people. You don't give up on your creation. And in Jesus, we see that we are all your people. I'm so glad, God, that you gently and carefully push down barriers, that you expand your family, that you welcome us all to you. Spirit of the living God, present with us now, Take the spaces where we are worried, maybe worried about our world, maybe worried about our family or our friends, and remind us that no place of conflict or restlessness or even death is outside of your healing. So come again to us in fresh ways, we pray. Amen.